What a drag it is getting old. And we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Ready or not, here we come. And welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk about a very serious subject here tonight. Um, when I was I think like five or six years old, my father took me to his cousin's house and his cousin was already middle-aged, but his cousin's father, so my father's uncle was there. And uh, they were telling me to be extra sensitive because my father's uncle had something they called senilities. He was senile. And as a five or six year old kid, I had no idea what that meant. And they explained to me that it was like a second childhood. Now, I'll be honest with you. That sounded like a cool thing. Wait, when you get old, you get to be a kid all over again? Now, as I got older and as I approached the age of my father's uncle, it's not such a cool thing. Uh, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. And as you've been, I've been around a lot of people working in nursing homes and and, uh, volunteering as much as I do. I see it a lot. And it's frightening. It's frightening thinking that, as my father kind of explained to me, it will happen to everybody if you live long enough. Now, I don't know if he was correct about that. We hear data coming out all the time about causes and and possible treatments for it, uh, and possible prevention of it. But it sure seemed that if you lived long enough, you would eventually have some real serious cognitive uh, problems. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Marian Skukjo. I'm sorry about that. Maybe I'm I'm getting a little bit of it myself at this point. She just told me how to pronounce it, and I'm still having problems with it. She's a nurse who writes uh, about Alzheimer's and dementia. With more than 20 years' experience as a staff nurse and a case manager, she's worked with count, countless families dealing with the issues related to aging, elder care, Alzheimer's, and nursing home placement. In 2002, she put the two together, nursing home and writing, and began to uh, write about intricate lives of people struggling with health and family issues. She's here now, ladies and gentlemen. Please open your minds and open your ears and help me welcome in Marianne Skuko. Right? Did I get it right? Uh, no. No. It's Shuko. Shuko. Okay, I'm sorry. It's hard. (laughs) That's all right. I've been dealing with it all my life. I bet you have. I would just change it to (laughs) to something easy for people. Uh, That that would be me. No. 
I'm going to put the uh, your website in scroll in the scroll along along the bottom mm -hmm. as we talk about it. Uh, now you have a very uh, interesting organization. I don't know if you founded it, uh, but to find 300 or so like-minded authors writing about the same subject mm -hmm. seemed like an incredible uh, feat, accomplishment, whatever you want to call it. Uh, let's start be, uh, by, did you start this organization by yourself? Or was, it, was it something that you perp did on purpose with a plan and um, an idea about creating an organization of Alzheimer authors? No, not at all. I started it uh, with another two other women that I met online. We had both written books on this topic. And it, you might suspect this is a really hard subject to try to, you know, capture your market, your audience. So I had published my book and uh, it's a novel. So a work of fiction. And it was really hard for me to get anywhere as far as building an audience, marketing and all that. So I reached out to some other women I knew that had written in the same uh, topic. They'd written memoir and said, would you guys like to get together and maybe we'll help cross promote each other and we will uh, try to raise awareness of Alzheimer's and dementia and the books. And they said, sure, you know what? We, we didn't really know each other at the time. And we just decided to do like a one month project back in 2015. And what we learned over the next few months is that we really liked each other. We became very good friends. So we decided to keep it going. So in 2016, we decided to write to um, have a blog. We started our blog and we, for the month of June, featured a new every day, Monday to Friday, and had them talk about their book and they talked about their dementia journey because all the books in our collection for the most part are all based upon personal experiences caring for a loved one so that ended up being a really great project and at the end of the month we just said why don't we just keep this going but we'll do it once a week so we'll get a new author every week and we'll just see what happens and where does it take us so now we have like over 350 authors and resources in our collection that we promote through various media, social media, the website, our newsletter, our YouTube channel, virtual events, all kinds of things that we got going on to raise awareness of the books that are available for families and caregivers of people who have Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, you started by saying that it's a little challenging to connect with the audience on this subject. Why? Why is that? When I first published my book in 2013, people, when I mentioned that it, the subject, it was an Alzheimer's love story, and people either ran away, they didn't want to hear about Alzheimer's, or they had it. So I, I found it very hard, even though it was a, a novel and it was a love story, which is, I always presented it that way, it's there's a lot of stigma surrounding a dementia diagnosis and people are afraid of it. They don't want to know about it or talk about it. Or if they've had an experience with it, it's profoundly impacted them to the point that they prefer to keep that in the past. So that was something that we had to do. And the other side of that is the fact that people who are in caring for loved ones that have a dementia, don't have time to read even if they need to learn they don't often have time to sit down and read a book so it was a very it's a very difficult prospect trying to reach the caregivers all right i remember 1990 or maybe even early, earlier than that i was in uh a mastering engineer and there was Kathy, I can't remember her last name. <laughs> this is scary when it was especially with the subject matter. Not being able <laughs> to remember names is is something that older people start to experience, and I'm getting there. But she had a song, Where You've Been, Where Where Have You Been? And it was about, you know, the subject of Alzheimer's. It was a love story, though. It was a hit. So that's why I'm like, I, I can't <laughs> I, I I can't wrap my arms around it being a challenge to connect with people because I think if it's part of your life, 
it becomes something you want to read more about. You wanna you want to explore more. Uh, I hear I hear your um, point about people don't always have the time to read, but from the from, it's not a a you know an overnight. Nobody flips a switch and becomes uh, needing twenty four seven care. Right? It's a gradual thing. It sneaks no. up. No. Right. right. It can last for decades. Yeah. And it can be, you know, forming in your brain for 20 or 30 years before you even show symptoms. Right. And that's why it's so scary mm. because yeah. we, at, at the minute you hit, say, 55, 60, and you start to have a few lapses of, I can't remember names, I can't remember places or mm-hmm. stuff like that, you start to be a little bit frightened. Like, is it is it starting? Uh, and that's right. that's a common thing. Uh, so what have you learned about the disease in the time that you've been dealing with it? When I first started, uh, I was a young nurse back in the late 80s or 90s. I worked long term. I worked with people who were at the end of their lives. And so that's how I came to understand Alzheimer's and, and dementia from from that place. But through my work with all authors and all the different authors I've worked with and the stories I've read, I've learned that for the most part, like it goes on for years and years before people even reach that point. And it is not all doom and gloom and hopelessness and helplessness. People are living really quality, um, quality, quality lives and still have a lot to to give and a lot to learn and and can be amazing there are amazing people in my organization who you know one is a doctor who has dementia for 10 years now and is still active and working with teaching people and patients in in the facility where she lives and blogging and keeping up um public appearances and things like that so i mean back you know, in 1990, I never would have imagined anybody with uh, dementia being able to do something like that. But that seems to be more of the norm than what you might find, like in a nursing home. Right. Um, mm. Yeah. And can it can it come? Uh, and and I'm, I'm asking you as if you were uh, a researcher on this, and I apologize mm-hmm. for this, uh, but like the science of it. But can it be? Subtle, can can we can you endure subtle Alzheimer's or dementia? And the two are different, right? They're not the same same thing. Dementia right. is a symptom of Alzheimer's. Am I correct in that? Um, well, there are conditions, and Alzheimer's is like the most common form of dementia. Dementia is like an umbrella term for a number of other um, cognitive impairments. Okay, so thanks, thanks uh, clearing that up. Yeah, so there's many diff- other different kinds, and it depends on like what part of the brain is affected, how it is affected. So some people can have very profound Alzheimer's, memory loss, loss of function, you know, loss of of managing their own personal self and things like that. Other people might just have like a mild cognitive impairment, and it never really progresses to that level. They may die from something else. Right. And as we uh, we strive to live longer through medicine and, and every other way that we and we are um, prolonging the lifespan of, of people, especially in, in the Western world here, uh, is it becoming it, first of all, was my father correct in that if you live long enough, everybody's going to get it? Well, there is some truth in that, because one of the greatest risk factors is age. So, um, you know, people who live like past 85, I think they said it was like a one in two chance of having dementia at that time. But I mean, it's, it's not something that's naturally going to befall everyone. Right. Uh, can it, uh, and because in my experience, it can come and go. And I, I don't know, I don't know if that's no. the, a correct way of uh, describing what I, but there can be long periods clarity and back to your old normal self in between periods of um memory loss you know acting out and all that kind of stuff is that Mm -hmm. your experience can it come and go 
Um, it's more like progressive and people have plateaus and periods of stabilization that's that can right. last for months or years. So that's, before that's a you... little different than what I've experienced. So I have to, yeah. and, and, and cause I've been, I had, it's not like I'm a, a researcher in the field or anything, but I've been around a lot of people, some of them family members and have seen where they would go months maybe a month month or two seeming like their old self and then something happens and okay it's back yeah um so that doesn't well, I, sound like progressive though that sounds like i don't know like it comes and goes that's the best way i can explain it well people have good days and bad days or so that's how they would yeah that's how <laughs> they would describe it i you know some of the people that i know that are very high functioning and then you only see them on the good day, too. Right. That's like the other thing is that if they're having a bad day, then most likely not you're not going to see them. So you wouldn't witness that. Unfortunately, I've lived with it, mm -hmm. which is where mm -hmm. that perspective comes from, because it seemed like, wow, maybe maybe it was not Alzheimer's. Maybe it was something else because it seemed to have passed. And then a month later or so, it's back. And Maybe uh, it was something else, you know, they don't really diagnose Alzheimer's until after death when they, they do an autopsy. Really? That's how you can find out for sure what it is. Sometimes it's just kind of like an educated guess. That's surprising I, mm -hmm. and completely new to me. I did not know that because, yeah, yeah there's no test for it. And when we, we see somebody who is old for lack of a better word, uh, acting like memory loss or acting crazy, we, we're we pretty quick to uh, just assume that that's what it is, right? Well, it could be so many different things, and that's why it's important for people to get checked out. Sometimes um, be reversed. So it, 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 if I, I'm hearing you correctly, we can all, the only way to tell if you actually have it is after death in in autopsy? Yeah, when they look at the brain that way. That seems almost impossible to come up with a treatment for it. Then, even though we're hearing, you know, if you pay attention to the news, every once in a while, uh, great breakthroughs in the treatment for Alzheimer's or prevention of Alzheimer's. Is uh, yeah. any is there hope for that? There's a lot of hope right now. Um, so people, the heart. Now, the signs of Alzheimer's or eels and plaques in their brain, but it may never progress to the disease. So people could have, you know, look like they might have, they're going to have eventual Alzheimer's or a dementia, and somehow it just never really gets to that point where they start having the symptoms. Other people get it and, you know, they can die of it within like five years. So um, there's really no way of knowing which way this is gonna, going to go. So there is hope, though, because the different medications that they've been coming up with seem to be making a much greater difference. I just went to a research presentation today, so I learned about some of these new meds that are being tested, and they seem to be very promising. All right. Now, when you first decided to become an author, and you were going, I'm, I'm curious about this. Um, you, I'm assuming from the way it's been characterized that you set out to write a love story, but was, was Alzheimer's and dementia always going to be a part of it? Or you just, uh, it just naturally from your work uh, found its way into your, your uh, novel. Well, I met a couple at my work that completely captivated me. And the wife had Alzheimer's and her husband was, was caring for her. And I met them. I mean, I just met them for a very short time, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about them. And they became the characters in my book. I wasn't really planning to write a book about Alzheimer's. I was actually working on a book about something else at the time. But it just kept, you know, when, when you get a good idea like that, it just keeps like growing and growing and feeding itself. And I, you know, I managed to write the whole book, so... And then all of a sudden I had this book about Alzheimer's and uh, it was kind of touchy. You know, at the time I just, I didn't know how to, how to handle it because I didn't know that I didn't want to be perceived as though I were trying to like 
you know, profit or capitalize on other people's misery because, you know, it, it is, there is a lot of misery attached for caregivers and family members. So I just didn't want that. So I didn't even call it Alzheimer's love story until every time people would ask me, what's the book about? And I would explain it. And then I was just one day, you know, this book is called, is an Alzheimer's love story. You might as well call it that. So that's hmm. what I ended up. That's like the subtitle. Yeah. Now, so. This was 20 years ago. Um, or more, or a little more than twenty years ago, that that you first started writing about this stuff, you were obviously a much younger oh, well. person then. What, did it uh, did it scare you? Just the, the prospect of seeing uh, seeing the what it looks like up close. Did it did it scare you at all? No, opposite. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you a little story. When I decided to be a nurse, go into nursing, there's nothing I ever really wanted to do but it became necessary for financial reasons. I um, took a job in a nursing home in the Boston area. And when I went on my job interview, they gave me a tour of the building and I saw everything except there was a third floor. And the woman who toured me said, well, upstairs on the third floor, that's where we have um, the Alzheimer's dementia patients, but we don't go up there. It's not part of the tour. So I, I didn't know what to think of that. I started to work there and soon after I started, I, people would talk and they would say, Oh, you never want to go up to, up to the third floor. If you get sent up there, you're going to have a terrible night. So I was kind of afraid of that. And one night the supervisor said, I need you to go upstairs because we're short and <laughs> you're, it's your turn. So it's like, Oh my God, what's going to happen to me up there? <laughs> right. And I went, I remember walking up the stairs and you know, it's got this big heavy door, but you could hear the noise. Yeah. All this noise, people and screaming and things. <laughs> and I opened that door and I walked with people. I loved up there, worked there all the time. I it was just like, it was fun. They were fun. Wow. So, um, yeah, they were That's... a lot of fun. I mean, they were a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of work to do because trying to take care of people that can't do anything for themselves. But they they were just, some of them were just so, uh, they were happy. And you could have fun with them. And, and when they would show, you know, signs of their joy or whatever, it just made you happy. I don't know. I, I wasn't afraid. That's an interesting perspective. I started um, volunteering in nursing homes when I was 18 years old, or actually even before I was 18 mm -hmm. years old. I think I was like 16. And it's been, a, a still doing it uh, probably twice a week now. And some nursing homes are scarier than others. And by scary, I mean mm -hmm. more full of dementia patients that will skate they because you never mm -hmm. know what to expect they, so when right. you say ha they are happy i see happy people i see uh, some of them are all, always happy every time i see them but some mm -hmm. of them are scary every time mm -hmm. i see them angry or acting out and all so you there are a wide variety of them but yeah. uh I, some nursing homes seem to be and I, i'm not uh, not pointing fingers, but some seem to be, I don't know, just rougher for people dealing with that. It's a, a, a harder existence. And I've, I've go to very expensive nursing homes where the care is, it seems like everybody's under control. You don't see a lot of that, except for when you're in an assembly where, you know, I'm going there to play music and there's a room full of people mixed in together uh -huh. and then then you can see problems but for it, it, it they run the gamut between scary happy all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff um yeah. one of the things i noticed and you kind of talked about it, when you you've met a couple mm -hmm. and, and one of the, the i guess the the wife had alzheimer's i yeah. go one of the places i go to uh quite often there are and this is kind of what I was talking about. It's kind of cool with the second childhood thing. There are, it's like a cafeteria setup where I'm uh, performing for them. And there are tables of clicks, like high school, <laughs> boyfriend and girlfriend and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and they act, it is, does seem to reflect a second, not childhood or adolescence, maybe, or, or childhood. And, that's, and in those cases, it can be pretty sweet. Uh, pretty uh, endearing mm -hmm. 
And you experienced that as well? Yeah, yeah. I've experienced that. And um, it can be pretty profound. I think like when they when you mentioned like being like in a childhood, it's like a lot of times people say, you know, we're reverting back to like babyhood. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like a negative a negative way of looking at it and, um, you know, becoming your parent's parent or your parent becomes your child. And, you know, those aren't, that's not really a great way to look at it because it's, they still have their dignity, but, um, I, I, the tough thing, the dignity part of it, because at some point you have to, you have to have the sympathy for the idea that, Although they are going through some really, really profound changes, mm-hmm. there is an adult who wants to be respected as an adult in, mm-hmm. in there somewhere. And and even though you're not necessarily communicating with that part of their, their personality all the time, you have to realize that they're still in there and they still deserve respect and dignity and all that stuff. But That's right. it, it's, it's easy to forget that because, the you know, of all the manifestations of of the disease right yeah that's true people i know who are living with the disease will tell you that they are not suffering it's the families that are suffering wow yeah they're not suffering they're okay interesting um does everybody get diagnosed i mean because after after death, if, if that's the only way to get diagnosed, does everybody no. who's suspected of it get diagnosed? No. How do we make no, progress? I don't think so. With, with with it, then if if we're just gonna assume, well, they had all, Alzheimer's, and just because they were acting different than they did yeah. their whole lives, it's it's like a, a diagnosis of exclusion. So if you were to like present yourself at your primary care and say, "I'm having memory issues," or these things are going on and I'm concerned, then they would start running tests, you know, blood tests and other tests and maybe some brain scans in different things to see if they can pinpoint a, a reason for it. And then as things start coming up, negative, 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 then, you know, it becomes fine tuned. You go into like a neurologist office or a psychiatrist's office and they try to whittle it down even more. So I went all through all of this with my stepfather Back in uh, 2015, he was showing signs of like very um, serious cognitive impairment. And I brought him through the whole process of getting a diagnosis. And in the end, he he ended up being admitted to a geriatric behavioral health unit. And in the end, they had diagnosed him with three different types of dementia, which was Alzheimer's, vascular disease, vascular dementia, and frontotemporal lobe. So they were trying to either like differentiate which one it might have been, or maybe it was all three or two of them. I don't really know what what it was, but we knew that he definitely had some kind of problem. And when he passed away, like we didn't pursue any further exploration. It did say Alzheimer's disease on the death certificate. Right now, the organization, uh, what's it called now? All's authors. All's authors. Okay. how many three oh, over 300 authors oh yeah have they all had personal experience with it with the disease probably about 95 to 98 percent okay do, uh, do you is there any like governing body within the organization that, that because i'm asking you questions here that mm-hmm. would necessarily or, or not necessarily but probably be best uh, to direct to somebody who has been a researcher or a scientist in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to know about it. And like the, the, any concern about people writing about something and putting out information that might not, or might be misleading to anybody about the disease. Mm-hmm. A lot of the authors, um, they are professionals in the field. They are social workers, psychologists, physicians, and had you know worked in this field and also had a loved one that had this disease or have it themselves right. so they have a body of knowledge and they do their research and a lot of them a lot of it is memoir so it's not you know it's more about like this is my story of what happened to us and so it's grounded in their own reality 
Right. Okay. Uh, now, in the beginning, when I asked you about this, you, you, you mentioned, and, and probably rightfully so, that people who are families who are dealing with this don't necessarily mm-hmm. have the time to read. What mm. I found, and maybe my my personal experience is different than most, I'll grant you that, but what I find is that patients or, or people who are going through it really respond well to have being read to and like like mm-hmm. oh and uh, so that's part of you know get the book and read a book about the, maybe they were couldn't there's still some of them inside there who recognize themselves in the story or any of that stuff uh is that a a i don't know therapy but is it is it productive to to read the books to you know sit there and read to them to read the Alzheimer's books to the patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. especially mm-hmm. if it's a fiction, so like a love story. You could. Well, that's just the whole premise of the the book and the movie, The Notebook, where he's reading to her her know. journal. Well, <laughs> he's reading her uh, her journal of their love story, and oh, she has Alzheimer's. Yeah, it, so that's how that works. But um, no, I I don't know that you would know you would do that. You could read anything you want. I mean, with them. And, and a lot of times it's encouraged to read things that are like nostalgic, that are going to take them back to a time in their life that they may still be connected to and to try to elicit some kind of an engagement by um, talking about things like that. And there are books now that have been written for people who have dementia. And there are two sets of them in our collection. One is, is like a book of nostalgia, which is photographs and words and things. And then another one was written by a speech language pathologist that actually has the science of trying to um, present written words to people who have, you know, probably mid early to mid level dementia where that where they can understand where they can follow and read along and, and absorb the information. So, I mean, you can do that too. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, now your book, uh, is, have you only written one book about it, or have you, or have you written several books about or dealing with the subject? Well, I wrote the one book, and then I've written prequel to that book, which is only about years before uh, she has Alzheimer's. And then I'm working on another prequel to that book that's the same family, but and other stories that I've written, but they don't go into Alzheimer's. I, I think I said it all in one book. Um, with your organization, all the authors, do, do you t- get to talk to people? I mean, does you have like meetings of like all three hundred authors or three hundred plus authors? <laughs> we uh, try. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> it would seem we, like once in a while you like to have a convention or something. Yeah, uh, that would or be terrific. A meeting of the month. So, do you know uh, all the people in your uh, organization or not? Personally, I do not know them all. No, I know a lot of them, but not all of them. I haven't read all of the books. I've read a lot of them. No. But um, we do a virtual events. So we do at least four a year where we bring authors in as panelists to have conversations on different things. So we meet them that way. And then other people participate in the audience. So we may have, you know, a couple of dozen authors together in, in one Zoom room and talking that way i mean my partners and i we have only been all of us together as a team in in eight almost eight years we have only been in in our physical presence together twice yeah i could see that that you know and and first of all authorship is a very solitary experience anyway i find most and i talk to a lot of authors uh many authors uh spend a lot of time alone a lot of time walking (laughs) <laughs> for some yeah, reason, walking seems to be and i i talked to an author who was also a musician who has a theory about why authors like to walk it's that left right kind of it's the motion of left and right continually on auto automatic that kind of uh, takes mm-hmm. over the conscious part of the brain and lets your creative mind just work on its own while mm-hmm. While you're doing something automatic like that, sounds like a, a uh, interesting enough theory that I made a lot of sense to me because I've done my mo- my best creative work after long walks all the time. I mean, yeah. uh, that's where it kind of um, is there like an underlying purpose to the organization? Is it to um, 
like further the understanding and research, mm-hmm. or is it just to uh, help families cope and deal with it? Is there an underlying purpose? And if so, how would you define it? Yeah, the mission is to um, try to erase the stigma and the silence that surrounds a dementia diagnosis. The stigma is the stigma mean, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's to the point where people won't even want to mention that they even this is even going on. Really? Mm-hmm. I find people it's a like secret. people like, and I, I've, I'm guilty of it myself. Um, you know, treating it like it, it's something to make a joke about when, mm-hmm. when, when I have moments, and I, I think I did it in this show where, uh, you know, I forgot the the, the uh, songwriter's name, the, the singer songwriter, Kathy something. I could see a face. Uh, but you know, alluding to that stuff, somebody when they re- saw the subject of tonight's uh, show said to me as a joke that I should just keep asking you the same question over and over again. Mm. Uh, so that's where you know I think the stigma mm-hmm. is mean. It's like we want to, and I think it's a defense mechanism. I think because we all all fear it so, but nobody wants that in our future. That it's easier to make a joke about it than to actually take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And like with the repeating, so when people repeat the same questions over and over, it's very, it's hard on them because they are not really grounded in the reality. And then it's that's stressful for that person. And then it's stressful for the receiver of that question, you know, 50 times and having to respond Right. is very frustrating. It's just a lot of frustration that goes on. Yeah. It's not uh, funny. Has it has it changed you uh you as a person uh, going through all that you've gone through in 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 witness in, in this field? Yeah. I yeah. You know, and then having my own personal like journey at the same time with my stepfather that I hadn't expected to uh I don't know. It kind of makes you grow up fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then the people are just remarkable. And there's just so many beautiful people in our world. You know, the authors and their loved one, their families. I, mean, I could talk all night and tell you stories about them and, and the things, the amazing things that they do. And um, people who, who come through their dementia journey and, and it always ends it comes to a natural conclusion. That's what I say. Everyone, because it ends in death, it's a terminal illness. And some people don't even realize that, but it is. And then they come out of it and they want to give back because what they've learned, they know is so valuable that they want to share it. And so that's where all of these, a lot of these books are coming from is people's desire to give back. That's interesting. So mm. uh, the way you phrase that is, mm-hmm. You said it's a terminal disease. Mm-hmm. Is it people die of Alzheimer's or they die of something else and mm-hmm. Alzheimer's is a condition that they had? It, well, it could be both. Well, how, does it kill, in, how does it kill you? Can, uh, I, just, it's it's I just know. this gradual shutdown of all of the functions. Wow. So, you know, people start to lose um, their ability to speak. They lose the mobility. They can't walk. They can't feed themselves anymore. They don't have like a hunger mechanism or a thirst mechanism to let them know that they need to have something to eat or drink. They're completely dependent on other people. And the body just continues to break down. They lose, you know, they lose body mass. They become very thin. They don't have enough. um, There's not enough of them to even continue making their organs function anymore and eventually they just give out and people you know their lungs give out their heart gives out right so yeah i, I guess I, i've never really looked at it that way i just thought mm-hmm. like you die of a heart attack you die of heart failure you die of mm-hmm. but the brain is the overall yeah the brain it, yeah. it is a brain illness and and people can die from anything else along the way they right. can have cancer they can get in an accident they can fall and break their hip Anything can happen. They can have COVID, you know, they can have a heart attack or a stroke. Anything else can happen. Personally, to me, it's a good thing. Right. Well, some of the the best moments of my life are um, 
people responding who I played at, at a VA nursing home a couple, about two years ago. And uh, it was a walk around. So I was doing like, I walk into your room and, and play music for you. It's not like I'm playing in a big hall. And That's there was right. an old, old fella in his bed and he was all, seemingly gone. His wife was next and she said, yeah, he loves music. I said, Mm-hmm. Like, does he even know I'm here? Uh, and, you know, not to be rude. Or, I'm just trying to understand that. Am, am I doing this for nothing? She said, no, he will. He, but she said he hadn't spoken or she hadn't had, he hadn't shown any response in like six months. He hadn't given any indication that he was still alive in there, but he was. Mm-hmm. And I played a song for him and he started tapping his foot and clapping his hands together mm-hmm. and like he, he brought came back to life and and the wife broke down i mean uh, was mm-hmm. like a pool of tears and saying he's he back you brought him back to life and so that was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life so the question i'm having for you is are there things that we know that work like music playing for playing music for people uh, or anything else that we know that works to help stimulate and pull them out of where, whatever dark places they're in. Mm-hmm. Well, music you know, proven to be a great stimulus. Uh, always, you know, when I w- would visit my stepfather, I used to play his CD. I had a CD player there with some of his favorite CDs and would play music that I knew that he liked. I don't know if you really heard it or not, but you can have, they usually have in places like you, like you said, they have music hours and, and activities and things like that. And you can even, you know, you can even give them instruments and let them play wow. as well. You know, I mean, I'm not going to play the piano or anything like that, but you know, you give somebody a tambourine or a maraca or something like that and they'll wave it around and, and um, they can sing people who can't speak might be able to sing a song in its entirety which is amazing. Yeah, that the brain is a really mm-hmm. uh, it's a mystery. My mom when she she came to live with me hospice with me in my home and uh she couldn't remember my name sometimes and you know things like that. But she did and I'm not exaggerating here, 15 to 20 crossword books, crossword puzzle books a day every single day we were constantly running out to buy crossword puzzle books and that mm-hmm. kept her you know we never checked them to see how good she was doing I mm-hmm. have to say that. but it kept her mind active mm-hmm. uh, from your experience does, does that is that useful at all they say that it is it keeps the synapses going and all that in your brain it keeps constantly making new connections so it's right. good to keep active and you know to do things like that and challenge yourself. Right. Um, and the, the website allsauthors.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there? I think there are like, I don't know if there we call them support resources or, or support groups or anything like that. Well, there, there is a section on your website that is for families of people who are going through this, right? Well, the whole thing is for families of people well, who are going through it. I yeah. mean, like uh, alternate so, places where they can learn more, or, you know, not just read books about it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we have our podcast. Tell me about so that. So I do a podcast. Yeah, it's called Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia. I interview the authors and we talk about their book and their dementia journey and they share what they've learned and, and um, it's to you know, give people another sort of resource that they can listen to. It's not necessarily sitting down to, you know, stop everything, read a book. Um, you can listen as you go, and you can learn that you're not you're not alone. Other people are out there doing what you're doing, and they have a lot of good information. So we've done like 85 episodes already for that, and we also do the virtual events that I mentioned, and those are recorded, and they end up on our YouTube channel and on our podcast as well, so people can participate in those and we get you know thousands of downloads on all of those things so we know people are paying attention to that cool and we have uh, a bookstore now if you went into our bookstore what you're going to find are the books are categorized according to either like the disease topic or the family situation so if you were like caring for your mother you could find all the books about mothers in one place. So you're not having to sift through all these other books that are not really relevant 
to your situation. You don't want to waste your time about on books that are about caring for your husband because you're caring for your mom. And we have a lot of kids books and uh, books for teenagers, like young adult fiction. And there are photography books, poetry books, caregiver guides, anthologies, short story books, uh, um, that, all that kinds of stuff. Opens up a whole bunch of different questions in my mind first of all you said teenagers <laughs> uh is it for teenagers experiencing life with grandparents or something because it's hard to uh-huh. it's hard for me to imagine i mean i, I experienced it as a teenager because i was uh volunteering in nursing homes because my grandfather was in a nursing home and that, that's what drove me to but i wasn't even thinking about you know, Alzheimer's or anything at that time. I was just mm-hmm. thinking about wanting to wanting to do something for grandpa. Uh, but so uh, with teenagers, is that it? Or we don't see this. We don't, it doesn't happen to teenagers, does it? Well, not really that they don't suffer from dementia. I mean, it could have a brain injury or something that would, but mainly it's because somebody in their family and, and, is affected by the disease and so it's like it is a family illness and everybody is affected any everyone who cares for that person has some kind has an impact on their life so if you're a teenager now you've got there could be different things going on at home related to the care of your say it was your grandparent or it could even be your parent if somebody has early onset there's teenagers who they may even be physically taking care of that person on their own or um their life is interrupted because of this diagnosis, this dementia. And so now the whole family's like gathered around that person and attending to their needs. And you may not get your needs met now because this, this is a greater problem going on. So it's hard for, it's hard for younger people to experience that. And, you know, they're not really mature enough to have the understanding right. uh, that's required. You said early onset and I'm thinking, it made me think now, how this is a, probably a, a you really can't answer with a concrete answer but how early early onset what does that mean there's 30s 40s no. early onset is prior to age 65 so it does affect people as young as the one the youngest author in our organization is was 39 when he started with his symptoms diagnosed at 49 wow yeah um do doctors get into predictive behaviors like uh, that's a scary thought to to be able to say well he's i'm acting this way maybe that means when i get older it's definitely in my future uh do do we get into that predictive you know behaviors um you mean what do you mean doctors like 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 if i went to a doctor and at when I'm 40 years old and all of a sudden I'm uh, having trouble remembering things or whatever it is uh, that I tell them, mm. will they, will they say, you know what, that's a, a, a warning sign and you're probably mm-hmm. starting to develop some of that. That's a scare thing to know that you've already, it's already happening to you. It's got to be mm-hmm. one of the scariest. I, I think I, honestly, I think I'd rather be told I have cancer than, I'm going because it's it's you're going to lose yourself. You're not going. Mm-hmm. You're not just going to die. You're going to lose who you are. You're going to lose your mind. That's right. got to be one of the scariest things a doctor could possibly ever tell you. Yeah, I don't know a lot of doctors that they may not want to say things like that. A lot of the stories and things that I've you know conversations I've had with people in the organization that have been through that they they have to go through a lot to get a diagnosis. And a lot of times if they were young, it would be, they would just be considered, no, that's not, you know, that's not the problem. And they look for other things and waste a lot of time and stuff like that. But, um, you know, if you had uh, diseases like cancer and things like that, there would be all kinds of support for you and options and treatment and things like that, that don't exist for people that have Alzheimer's and dementia. There's very little little you know there's no operation or magic pill right now that's gonna clear hope, it up hope is what is the word you're looking for right? yeah 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 <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. man. yeah and that's yeah. why it's so scary too, because you know it seems like you know but it's not like it doesn't mean you're gonna die right away and it doesn't mean that it's gonna be miserable either really 
so I, I, it's how how you want to look at it i mean there are so many people that are like living they live better after they get diagnosed than they were before all right so. i'm going to ask you some questions a, a couple of questions about what you do and if you don't feel like answering or uh please just mm -hmm. say i but my experience and i've had a couple of doctors on here and i've had some authors who've written about a crisis in care in healthcare, mm -hmm. and um and i have seen it and as i mentioned earlier i've been to many different nursing homes and the quality of care can be different and can be starkly different from one to another mm -hmm. and there is this belief but and i i uh, subscribe to this belief that Many nurses uh, have and doctors have been overworked to the point of exhaustion and can't provide quality care. But there's also, I think, an epidemic of people getting into healthcare for a job who don't necessarily have the required empathy skills that, especially in Alzheimer's uh, or or. or you know, a nurse or or people who work with people who have these kind of things are capable of. Do you do you think? Do you believe? Are you? Do you agree with me? <laughs> yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, some people are ill suited to the profession of nursing, and and they're there because uh, they found out you could make really good money in many cases. So you now, where I live, that you can make very good money being a nurse. So we have all kinds of people going into the nursing profession they hopefully get they get weeded out in college well you know, but I, I don't know i don't think they are I, well it depends some of see again i'm going to so many different facilities you will i will walk into one where people are happy to be there they seem mm -hmm. full of empathy everybody in the place seems to be professional but not only professional dedicated to the care for their, their people. And then I will go into some facilities where uh, I see a nurse bump into a guy and knock him into the wall and, and yell at him like it was his fault for being in the wheelchair in her way while she was working. And mm -hmm. there was such a wide variety of right. people. But to your in your mind or experience, is there anything that that is happening to solve that? Because it is a problem. And I do believe it's easy to identify problems. People are very slow to come up with solutions. Is there? A, are we working on a solution for the empathy problem or the overwork problem or all of that, which provides for diminished care across the board? Well, I think the you know everything is driven by profit. It's all about money, so that's a big problem. And then, especially as we move into more technological advancements and with artificial intelligence and things like that we're going to be um expecting people to do more and not giving them what they need to do the job so i i remember back when i was working for instance they would um they would give you more money they'd give you a dollar an hour more but what you needed was somebody else to help right. they never got that Right. You know, that didn't happen. So because because I would say, you know, I don't really care if I get more money. I think we need to have I want to have a better night because I have somebody else here helping me with this. I need more hands. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's it, my, my wife is a nurse. Really who works, my, my wife is a nurse who works in a, a nursing home. And um, I have mm -hmm. been almost to the point where I want to go there and grab the administrator by his neck and say, you have to hire more people. This, this mm -hmm. is your, your problem. It's not that you, you don't have the right people. You don't have enough people. That's you, right. you and, don't have enough people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, these, and, you know, taking care of these patients is a lot of work and they have to be, you know, they have a lot of basic needs that need to be met and you can't do it. Like I used to work I told you my first job when I had to go up to the third floor, I was like kind of, um, it was disenchanting because I worked in a place that was very wealthy. It was in a wealthy community and it had a lot of resources. So that was my introduction to the whole nursing home thing. And then when I left there and I moved to New York and went to work in a place, now I was working in a place where the most patients I ever had in an evening was nine. And then my next job, there was me and one other person sharing 28 people. Yeah. 
and you know i was like are you kidding me i mean you can't even do anything for anybody at, at that i mean you're just con constantly run 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 on the go and, and never being able to satisfy everybody's needs because you needed another person right yeah but you didn't uh, get that they didn't want they don't want to pay for that and you know the business the business and it is a business is evolving so like everything in uh america in in the society that we live in corporations tend to take over mm -hmm. uh my wife works in one that is not necessarily you know big it's not a big corporate thing it was it's been bought by several private owners it hasn't been corporatized yet but some of the ones i work in the corporate ones and I'm not saying this is better, but the corporate ones that I work, I, I work in and, and volunteer in, they seem to be better. The, the care seems to be better. Um, they seem to be more ready to deal with uh, staffing uh, shortages and stuff like that. Where the private ones, they're squeezing every nickel of profit out of the thing, and they're they're mm -hmm. really not so concerned with making sure they have enough people. You wouldn't think you would think corporate would kind of be more cold and caring about the profit line more than the private ones. But that has not been my experience. Uh, any uh, take on that from you? <laughs> Again, if that's, it's um, if that's uncomfortable, you can just say I that. don't know. I mean, I, where I am, like the best place around was the county home. County. The one that was paid for by the taxpayers. Yeah, so well. they had a great, and they tried to get rid of that. It was on the chopping block for a long time. Right. But it ended up prevailing, and um, they didn't. They weren't allowed to privatize it because people felt that if they did that, the quality of the care would go down. But it was like a place where people that would be like their first choice right. if they had to go somewhere. And a lot of the others are private, and they're like small change chains or family owned. You know, and it is a profitable business. So, and healthcare workers are expensive. I know that. But they're also underpaid, uh, you know. And they're underpaid. Yeah, it's so weird because they're expensive, but not because the salaries are so high. It's because of all the, all the administrative costs and all the red tape that you have to go through in hiring people. But to be honest with you, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of nurses, of uh, nurses in particular, maybe not doctors, but nurses, uh, I think are very underpaid for i mean when we look at what we value in people and their experience and what they bring uh to society uh nurses and school teachers and people <laughs> just really really underpaid tragically underpaid mm -hmm. where a, a website designer will make five times what a nurse mm -hmm. will make <laughs> or saying. an athlete <laughs> yeah oh well an athlete forget about it millions of times <laughs> time. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's so crazy it's crazy uh are you an optimist for health care i hope so because i'm going to be ne probably needing it in the next couple of decades <laughs> it's, that's better i work at a college and we have a nursing program so uh we're constantly we're it's hard to get into and there's always a waiting list. So I know that there are a lot of people still wanting to go into nursing. Well, I appreciate your sense of humor about that. When I, <laughs> my wife and I, when we, when we first got together, we went to audition for uh, deal or no deal, the show. And mm -hmm. they were asking us questions. I said, I got a, a nursing home nurse because I know <laughs> I'm going to need one someday. And mm -hmm. that was my reason for marrying my wife. <laughs> so she can take care of me as I get older. Uh, your book, do you have it? Do you want, can you? Can oh, I found it? it. Yeah, it's right here. If you can see it. I can. Let so me, it, has, it has the uh, beautiful older couple on the cover on the beach because it okay. takes place in Cape Cod. And cool. um, I love this photo, the two of them, because she, He's looking at her with such love, and she's looking at him like kind of unsure of what's happening. <laughs> Very cool stuff. And uh, it's going to be ten years old, uh, and I'm re do going to republish it as a new edition and with a new um, like a forward that's going to be about all authors and a new cover. And then I'm going to add my prequels to the back, so the reader will get a bonus and get all the stories. Very cool. And they yeah. will be able to get that at allsauthors.com. It's Lincoln available allsauthors.com. 
Very it's available cool. on all. It's available on, on Amazon too. Uh, all right. Uh, I, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and, and thank you so much and, and hear about this. And I hope you do well with the book. I I appreciate what you're doing because um, the stigma is it's in my in my opinion the stigma is mean. It's it's but it's not mean on purpose. It's mean to, uh, on as a defensive mechanism for most of us because it's it scares the hell out of most yeah. of society just knowing that it's there waiting it's there waiting so i mm. applaud what you're doing and uh I, you know fabulous work getting getting this organization to grow and 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 prosper and and add new authors all the yeah. time uh so good luck with what you're doing and please do keep in touch Thanks when you so publish much. book don't you know the next book if you want to come back and have uh, some further conversation about this i'd love to have you back sure that'd be wonderful thanks thank so you. much thank you Bye for now. Have a great night. Bye for Bye-bye. now. Bye-bye. You Bye. too. Marianne Skuko. I hope I got it right that down. Skuko. I think I got it. Skuko. Skuko. <laughs> Sorry about this. I've never been good with, with name pronunciations. I like Joe Smith. Bob Johnson. Uh, you know, names like that. Mr. Jones. Anyway, I'm. I apologize for... You know, my name's not that easy to pronounce either. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on the topic tonight. Info at minddogtv.com. Info at minddogtv.com. Very serious subject. Try to um, try to approach it with, with kind of a lighter attitude, but it is a very serious subject. And if anybody who uh, has dealt with it knows, um, it can be it can be devastating to families. And that's so you know. It, Sometimes fiction, memoirs, somebody else's story can help us deal with things. And so maybe that's my biggest takeaway from from all this. A lot of these books are a form of therapy, not for the patient, but for those affected by the disease in families and stuff and the family dynamic. That's my takeaway from it. Anyway, again, love to hear your thoughts on the matter. Write to me at uh, info at mindoftv.com. Tomorrow, I have a double Dante day. <clears throat> Dante Hale will be the guest on Coffee with the Dog, 9 a.m. And Dante the Comedian, both are comedians, Dante the Comedian and um, CEO of a major entertainment firm in Los Angeles, California, will be my guest on the evening program, a special Thursday night of the e- uh, evening program tomorrow night. So uh, hopefully you'll tune in then. Uh, I'd love to see you. Thanks for coming. Have a great night. And bye for now.
to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.